Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. I want to, this evening, I want to talk about the marks of the church and the, and in specifically one of the marks of the church. So let's pray and we'll do so. Father, we pray that you would bless this time. Pray as we look into your word that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us. Father, we pray that we would, we would love your church, that we would love her uh, ordinances, that we would love her preaching, and that we would love her discipline. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we think on these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, at the time of the Reformation, the church was, the leaders, the theologians, the pastors, the priests of the church were trying to figure out what was a true church, right? Did it consist did the true church consist in its antiquity or in its apostolic succession or a lot of the things that the Roman Catholic Church said it consisted in, right? Where the Pope is, there is the church, they would say. And the Reformers came along and they saw the, the, the false doctrine and they began to think through the question of what constituted a true church. And they came up with three marks of the church, three things that have to be present or, or you don't have a true church. Now, in reading Bavink this evening, Bavink makes a distinction between a true church and a pure church. And that's a helpful distinction. A true church is fundamentally what a church has to have. But then even within a true church, there are varying degrees of purity within that church. And so these have, these have been called through, uh, through Reformation history and, and since that time the three marks of the church or the three notes of the church. And those are these things, faithful preaching of God's word. Without the faithful preaching of God's word, you don't, you don't have a church, a true church. The other would be the faithful administration of the sacraments, the Lord's table and baptism. And then third would be the faithful exercise of church discipline. So um, I, I think, again, helpful to think about this is what do, what do these three things boil down to? The word of God. Right, where, We would say where the word of God is, there is the church, not where the Pope is, there is the church. Where the word of God is. So you think of those three marks, faithful preaching of the word of God. That one's obvious. It's obviously the word. But then you have the faithful administration of the sacraments. And the sacraments are visible, the visible word. Okay, And then the, the exercise of church discipline is the, the word received. Right? It is the word applied. It is the word administrated within the church. And so that's key. That, that's key because you know that the rallying cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura. 
Right? That is going to be the end of all controversies in the church, is the word of God. And that is in direct opposition to what the Roman Catholic Church uh, said during the time. But I really want to focus on that third mark of the church, the faithful exercise of church discipline, the word received, the word applied. And, and the question is, is this, who needs that? All of us do. Who needs accountability? Who needs accountability by the word of God? Raise your hand if you don't need accountability from the word of God. Who among you does not sin? No one can raise their hands. Right? And so church discipline is, is, the, is, is accountability in the church. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about what it is, what it's not, what it's meant to do. Um, <clears throat> it used to be that church discipline was a boringly normal part of church life. Now... If you practice church discipline in any sort of consistent way, you get the moniker cult very quickly, right? What is this weird place that disfellowships people when they sin, right? It's just, it, it, it is a, it's a weird, it's a completely strange concept. Of course, we live in an era where, you know, we, we, there are no winners and losers, where there are consolation prizes for everybody, where children aren't disciplined in their homes. And so the fact that adults would be disciplined, let alone children, in the ch- context of the church is just is almost too much for us to compute. What would happen to our society if we did not have discipline? What would happen to our society if we didn't have police officers? What, what, about, what happens in a home where parents don't discipline? What's that? wasn't really asking for answers, but I'm happy to interact. These are hypotheticals. No. Absolutely. It's chaos, and that's exactly what would happen in in society without our fathers in the society exercising discipline, um, police officers, you know, that, and, and honestly what needs to be said as everybody's thinking through what it means to have police officers today is that the abuse of authority does not negate the proper use of authority, right? And so we don't, we don't throw out police officers because there are a few bad apples, there are a few bad uh, you know, the, in every context, there is abuse of authority because we're sinful, right? But there is a good use of authority. There's a good use of discipline. And, um, and parents need to know that. Police officers need to know that. And church officers need to know that as well. And the people of the church need to as well. Um, Just as fathers and mothers who dearly love their children must take the time to correct and encourage them, pastors and elders who love the Lord and the Lord's people must take the time to correct and encourage them. That's discipline. That's church discipline. That's this mark. So who who should be disciplined? Who is under discipline in this church? I'll take answers. 
Who's under discipline in this church? We all are. In one sense, we all are, right? There is informal discipline. Right now, you are listening to your pastor preach, right? And so every time we come and sit under the word of God, we're all being disciplined in that sense. It's informal, but it's real nonetheless. It is the constant stew that we sit in, that we stew in. Is We're all under discipline. We have all fallen short. We all need accountability. We all need encouragement. We all need to hear from the Lord through his word and through those who preach his word. Who else is under discipline? Or I guess the question is, what other uses of discipline are there? And, and I would say that one of the uses of discipline is to stimulate the indifferent, right? That's, that's informal still, right? You come into worship distracted, distant in mind, and unprepared, and it's, it's the job of the pastor to, to stir up your zeal and to shake off your indifference. And that is, um, that is part of, of discipline, stimulating the, the indifferent. There's also, um, <clears throat> there's also more formal discipline. So that's informal discipline, all the sitting under the teaching of the word of God that we all undergo. There's also more formal discipline. And what is more formal discipline? What does that look like? Well, that's when the elders are processing with somebody and there are censures and there are trials and there are, um, there's suspension from the table and there's excommunication as a possible outcome of that formal process of discipline. And... That is a good thing and a blessing, right? Because there's a purpose behind those practices in the church. And the purpose behind those practices in the church are not what you think they are, first of all. The purpose of those practices is the glory of God, is that God might be glorified in this congregation, right? So... um, So we're all under discipline, but we're not all under formal discipline, right? There are times when when discipline has to happen in the presence of all, even of an individual. There's discipline that needs to happen in the presence of all. Do you know in our Brook of Church order that it says that if it gives discretion to the elders, that if somebody is excommunicated, that that can take place publicly during a service. And I can't imagine doing it any other way. Honestly, there may be times when we would make a decision to do it privately. But the whole purpose of admonishing and disciplining somebody publicly is what it says in, in um, where is it? It's 1 Timothy, I believe, 1 Timothy 5.20. Discipline those who sin so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Right? So we see this taking place, we see formal discipline taking place, and it causes us to, to fear God. It causes us to be circumspect about our own behavior. And this is why it's good to see baptisms. This is why it's good to, see, to go to marriages right, and hear vows taken, because you're reminded of your own 
failures to keep your vows and um, baptism you're reminded of the vows of membership that we take and you're reminded of again failures and there and it leads to repentance in the biblical church discipline is a culture of accountability growth forgiveness and grace that should it, it should it should permeate our our churches now just one thought that occurs to me here is it is the tradition of Americans that once they come under formal discipline to do what? Leave. And it is such a loss to the rest of the church. Some of the most beautiful times that I've ever been a part of in the church is when somebody comes under formal discipline, is admonished before the congregation, and repents and is welcomed back to the church. It's powerful. It's glorious, right? It is the fruit of discipline. And once, I would love to see that happen with informal or formal discipline, to ride it out through the process and become an example then to the congregation of remorse and repentance. It's something we're missing Right? It, that is a beautiful thing. That is an example to us. And it's, it's honestly, um, th- that repentance, that restoration that could possibly come is probably the height of that man or woman's glory in the church. <laughs> is that repentance, that example. And our churches lose out in seeing the fruit of formal process. And I wish we, we didn't. I just want to go through a number of verses really quick that speak of church discipline. We can turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you know the problem in Corinth, right? Corinth had some problems, more than one. But they had a guy who was committing incest with his father's wife. And this is what it says, uh, verses 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. So he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the leaders of the church. He's speaking to the Corinthian church. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They become arrogant. They think, no, you know, church discipline, too heavy-handed, unfruitful, provocative. You know, we're sophisticated. We will... We'll, We'll send him to counseling, right? We'll send him to the semi-Christian counselor. And then may, you know, we want to, that'll be good. You become arrogant, have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Right? So Paul hands this man over to Satan. Right? Out of the presence of the people of God, out of the church, sent away because of his wickedness. For what purpose? So that he might come to repentance and that he, his spirit might be saved when Jesus returns. So the purpose was not to condemn this man to hell. The purpose was to restore this man to health and to bring him back. Uh, verse 13 also, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, it says. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so <clears throat> we learn in 2 Corinthians that this man does indeed repent and is restored and is brought back. And Paul encourages them to bring him back. We could go to um, oh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. There are times when God does that through his intervening providentially in your life. There are times when God mediates that through the elders of the church, right, as they make judgments. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Obey your leaders. And it's 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Right? So obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Think of that, elders. Think of that giving an account of God for all the souls that have been under your care. Doesn't that fill you with fear? Doesn't that motivate you to be faithful and to use the mechanisms that God has put in his word for discipline? <clears throat> and you, who aren't elders, stop making this so hard on the elders. Stop making it hard. It's not profitable for you to make this difficult. It's profitable for you if you allow us to discipline and, and do so joyfully and without be provoking us. Right? That's, what's good. That's what this passage says. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable for you to grieve your elders and to... And to posit your own reasons for as to why they're being faithful to the word of God. Right? We come under discipline. We start thinking, okay, Dion, his, he's a man who has anger issues. I mean, he's really got anger issues. And he's, he's, he's passive-aggressive. And this isn't about discipline. This isn't about the Lord. This isn't about righteousness. This isn't about the period of the church. This is just about Andrew Dion. Right? And then, and then you, you instantly have a pass to, um, 
to blow out, right? To remove yourself from that terrible situation. But nothing, nothing, there is nothing we do more carefully as an elder board than contemplate who needs discipline. It's agonizing in its details. It's agonizing in the slow pace that we take so that we are careful when we do this, right? And we can be wrong. We can be wrong. We don't, it's not papal infallibility, you know. We're not speaking ex cathedra. We can be wrong in these things and have to repent ourselves and be disciplined ourselves. And thank goodness there's a presbytery that would do that. Right, Galatians 6.1. Again, talking about church discipline. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Right, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Right, that restoration is the process of church discipline. Restore is, is a huge uh, placeholder for, for discipline. But it's to be done in a spirit of gentleness. It's to be done so as to lead somebody to repentance. But, but hear this. I guarantee you if you, come, if you come under formal discipline in the church, no matter what is said, you will think it is not said in the spirit of gentleness. In other words, if truth is spoken to you, you will believe it's harsh and judgmental and against you and unkind and the fruit of the sins of your elders. That's what you will be tempted to say. Even if we were just to read you a verse of the Bible, you would say that that choice of a verse was pinpointed just to assault me. That's what happens. That's our pride flares up when we are told that we have erred, that we have sinned, that we have sinned against the Lord. Right? And so that's part of the reason I want to preach tonight is that if, if for some reason... There is a sin that carries you away, and we have to come to you and discipline you. I want you to be prepared for it, at least to be able to take a moment's thought before reacting to what we say and the burden of leading and disciplining. And, of course, the the classic text that we go to for church discipline is what? Anybody know? Yes, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 to 18 lays out a process of church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So that's stage one. You hear that your brother has sinned. Perhaps he's sinned against you, but he's sinned. And you go and you, you, rather than going to the church, rather than going to the elders and saying, look, I think we've got a problem here. So-and-so did such-and-such. No. The first step is for you to be a Christian 
And for you to remember the last verse of James, which says if you've turned your brother away from his sin, you've saved his soul. Right? The first line is for you to go to that brother and say, look, brother, I think you've sinned. You do it humbly. Right? You do it knowing that you could be wrong. But you go to him privately. You show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, in other words, if he says, you're right, I've sinned, and he repents, then you've, you've won your brother. But what if he doesn't listen to you? What do you do then? Well, the second step is to go back with somebody else. Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so you go with two or three or one or two others with you, and you confront that brother and you talk to him and you, you humbly point out his sin, remembering that, that you too, um, you must do it in a spirit of gentleness, like Galatians 6 lays out. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, what does that mean? Tell it to the church means tell it to the elders who are the church. Okay, It doesn't mean that you get up and make an announcement on a Sunday morning service. Well, we tried, I tried privately and I tried with one or two, but now all of you need to know. No, the, the elders are the church, okay? Synecdoche, a part for the whole. And so you come and you tell it to the, <clears throat> the church. And if we're wise, we say, well, have you gone to him privately? Have you gone to, you know, have, have you brought others with, has there been any work to try to get him to repent on this? And, and then we engage in the process of what's called investigation. We investigate, right? The BCO, the Book of Church Order, lays out just exactly how we're supposed to investigate. We don't get to make up the rules. We don't get to, we don't, we're, our hands are held very tightly about what we can and cannot do. Go to evangelpresbytery.com and pull down the BCO and read about it. There are 30-some chapters that tell us how to practice discipline. And every time you do it, you forget it and have to restudy that whole document. I'll tell you that. And so, so you take the two, he doesn't listen to them, you take it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, not a part of the whole, not a part of the church, not a part of God's pure people, outside, right? And then it says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And now we have to talk about what the keys of the kingdom are. Right? What are the keys of the kingdom? What does that last verse mean? Do the elders get to get to um, are the elders, you know, able to determine whether one goes to heaven or not? Well, here's what Calvin says on the keys. He says, it relates to the discipline of excommunication, which has been committed to the church. Now, the church binds him whom she excommunicates. Listen to this. Not by plunging him into eternal ruin and despair, but by condemning his life and manners. 
and admonishing him that unless he repent, he is condemned. Right? So it's not like we're saying, to hell you go. And when we decide, maybe we'll release you from hell. Not at all. God alone has the power to cast the body and soul into hell. Right? But it does say that we, we condemn, as the elders of the church who have watched over yourselves, we condemn your life and your behavior. This is sin. We condemn it. And we will not allow it to be a leaven that leavens the whole lump. Calvin goes on, he says, She looses him who she, whom she receives into communion because she makes him, as it were, a partaker of the unity which he has in Jesus Christ. Let no one, therefore, contumaciously... It's a word you should know. Do you know what contumacious... Contumacy is? You guys know what that means? It means rebellion against authority. Let no one, therefore, contumaciously despise the judgment of the church or account it a small matter that he is condemned by the suffrages of the faithful. The Lord testifies that such judgment of the faithful is nothing else than the promulgation of his own sentence. And that they that what they do on earth is ratified in heaven. For they have the word of God by which they condemn the perverse. They have the word by which they take back the penitent into favor. Now they cannot, now they cannot err nor dis disagree with the judgment of God because they judge only according to the law of God, which is not an uncertain or worldly opinion, but the holy will of God and oracle of heaven. Okay, and so... So what he's saying there is that those keys are given to the elders of the church and they do have the right to excommunicate from the church, right? They don't do so infallibly, right? But they do so based upon what? Based upon the word of God. That's it. There is nothing that we as elders have other than the word of God. We don't get to make up some extra rules by which we'll, we'll discipline the members of the church. All we have is the word of God. That's it. Calvin, at one other point, says um, about excommunication, he says, for the severest punishment of the church, and as it were, her last thunderbolt, is excommunication, which is not used unless in necessity, right? A last resort is excommunication when that person is taken off the rolls and put out of the church. That's the last thunderbolt. And so what, what um, I mean, again, my, my notes are chaos, so I'm trying to organize this as I go. The... I've got some bannermen here that I wanted to bring up. I'm going to try to make sense of this on the fly. He talks about the keys of the kingdom as well. And he talks about what power does the church have? What can they do? What can elders do in the church? He also goes through what can the state do, this, his book um, on, uh, on the church. 
but he, and that's very interesting and worth reading. But he, here he says this, and I'll, I'll try to interpret as we go along. In the instance of the exercise by the church of the key of doctrine, right? So in regard to doctrine, what people believe and what people teach, its right and power are to interpret and imply according to its understanding of it the sentence already pronounced by the word of God upon the offense with which it has to deal, exhibiting before the eyes of the offender and applying in this case the judgment of the scripture as to the future and eternal consequences of his sin. In the instance of the exercise by the church of the key of discipline, right, morals, not doctrine. Now he's talking about morals of the church. When somebody commits sin, that's not of a theological or doctrinal. In the instance of the exercise of the church of the key of discipline, its right and power are by its own judicial act to exclude the offender for a time or permanently from the outward privileges of the church. And then he says this, but beyond this, the church has no authority and no power. So you can correct theology by the word of God, and you can put out sinners who sin against the word of God and what it teaches. That's what you can do. Correct and excommunicate. He says, beyond that, the church has no authority and no power. In the case of the key of doctrine, the office and duty of the church are simply declarative and no more, having power to announce what, according to its own understanding of them, are the decisions of the word of God, as applicable to the case in the way of absolving the repentance and condemning the impenitent sinner. But having no power in itself and apart from the divine sentence to absolve or condemn. In the case of the key of discipline, morals, the office and duty of the church are simply ministerial, having power to admit to or exclude from the outward privileges of the Christian society, according as it believes that Christ in his word has admitted or excluded, but having no power in itself to open or shut the door of the invisible church or to give or withhold admission to the favor of God. Right? So that's what I was saying earlier. All the church can do is minister and declare. You're wrong on your theology because here's what it says in Galatians. You're wrong. We condemn your view because Galatians says this. Or Genesis says this. We can do that. Or you've sinned against God. You're pure, you're, you're Im, you are impinging the purity of the church. We send you out. That's it. That's what the church can do officially and formally as discipline. We can't send you to prison. We can't pick up the sword and cut off your head. Those are powers that God has given to the states. They may have reasons to cut your head off, but we do not have any impetus to do that ourselves. We can minister and declare the word and see, you see how it all comes down to the word. We can say, no, you've interpreted the word wrong, or you're not living according to the word. And so all of the judgments of the church have to come down to the word of God. The word of God written. That is a hugely important part of this. So where does discipline stop? Where does discipline stop? Discipline always stops at repentance. Right? That's where formal discipline stops. And I've been talking about formal discipline. Right? Formal discipline stops at repentance. 
There are goals. There are goals to, um, to church discipline. I said that earlier. I alluded to them. And I want to make sure that I get this right. So I'm going to a section of our book of church order. This is chapter 30 of our book of church order. And I just want to read through it and make a few comments on it because it's very helpful. It tells us what discipline is. Discipline, it's called. The title of the chapter is. And and you may be bored by all of this, but I tell you what. If we have to discipline you, you won't be bored by any of this. Right? It's hard for you to listen to me right now because I'm going through details and I can tell you're sleepy. But this is, this is extremely important for you. Okay? I used to be naive and think there were people who wouldn't fall under discipline. Now I know that it's possible for anybody in this room to fall under discipline in a moment. Okay? In a moment, you can fall into temptation that will drag you out of this church. Right? And this is, this could be your salvation, this discipline. So chapter 30 says that it's called discipline. It's nature, subjects, and ends. So what it is, who gets it, and the purpose of it. Okay? And it says this, discipline is the exercise of authority given the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. The term has two senses. A, the one referring to the whole government, inspection, training, guardianship, and control which the church maintains over its members, its officers, and its courts. So it's just all the structure. B, the other, a restricted and technical sense signifying judicial process. All that formal discipline. Section two, in the first and broader sense, all communing, listen to this, non-communing and associate members of the church are subject to its discipline and entitled to the benefits thereof. The benefits. You, You get a benefits card when you join Trinity Church, and that's you fall under the discipline of this church. Right? There are benefits to this. And so all communing, those who are at the table, non-communing, usually the children who haven't yet made that profession of faith, and associate members of the church. Associate members are those who are temporarily members here but retain their membership at a home church. But in the second and narrower sense, the term discipline refers only to those who have made a profession of their faith in Christ. In other words, the only people who come into the formal process are those who have come to the table. Only members, full members, can be excommunicated because they're the only ones who are at the table. Right? They can be suspended from the table. Okay, in its proper usage, discipline maintains, and here's the, the end of discipline. Here's why we do it. And it has these in the right order. In its proper usage, discipline maintains, A, the glory of God. The glory of God is the first goal of church discipline. It has nothing to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with, is God going to be glorified? Is he going to be be held forth as holy? Is he going to be held forth as the judge of the whole world? Is his, his honor going to be magnified or not in this church? Right? Is, are we going to glorify him or not? 
B, the purity of his church, broadly speaking. The purity of his church, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Those churches who don't practice discipline don't care if Jesus' spouse is a whore. Right? I mean, to put it crassly. They just don't care that, that, that uh, the church would be beautiful and that the church would have a reputation of purity. And then finally, it comes to see the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. Finally, it's about you. Right? The last part of discipline is that you might repent. The glory of God, the purity of the church, your repentance. That's the goal of this discipline. Discipline is for the purpose of godliness, it says, therefore it demands a self-examination under Scripture. The ends of discipline, so far as it involves judicial action, are the spiritual good of the offender, the rebuke of offenses, the removal of scandal, the promotion of the purity and welfare of the church, and, listen to this, the vindication of the honor of Christ. The vindication of the honor of Christ. God's honor demands that we discipline impurity. Section four, the last section, the power which Christ has given the church is for building up and not for destruction and is to be exercised as under a dispensation of mercy and not wrath. As in the preaching of the word, the wicked are doctrinally separated from the good, so by discipline the church authoritatively separates between the holy and the profane. The church is to act as a mother who corrects her children for their good. That's what the BCO says. The church is to act as a mother who corrects her children for their good, that every one of them may be presented faultless in the day of Christ. The church, and it, it, the church is to be as a mother, and there is nothing more despicable than when a child disrespects his or her mother. Right, the one who labored and gave birth to you. To disrespect that one is terrible. So it is that the church is a mother. The church has given birth to you through baptism, through the ministry of the church. And to disrespect the church then is just, it's despicable. When elders refuse to discipline, the reputation of the church is diminished. It is a scandal when an unbelieving world has higher standards than the church. Right? That is scandalous. How many churches refuse to deal with heinous sexual predators, for example? Heinous sins. Many. On the other hand, when, when, we, when we have attempted to deal with heinous sexual sins in this church, we have done what's right in turning to the civil magistrates Right? We went and um, in numerous cases we've had to engage the civil magistrates because not only were the sins sins, they were crimes. And the civil magistrates, the sheriff, the solicitor really wanted nothing to do with it. And so there's nothing we can do at that point 
as far as crimes. That's their jurisdiction. They can pick it up, they can not, they can fail, they can succeed, but we can't do anything about it, and we can't become then somebody who tries them and convicts them criminally. All we can do is deal with them spiritually. We can declare to them the word of God. We can minister to them the word of God. That's, that's all that's left. But what a wonder it is when the civil power joins with the church and works together as God has meant them to work together. It doesn't always happen that way. But let me say this while I'm thinking about it. If you fall under discipline and you come and... and confess crimes to us before we get too far we'll be going down to the sheriff okay we do not shun that authority that is authority that has been set up by God and is good and is for the punishment of the evil and the praise of the good right and so we want to work with them we want them to bring their sword to bear and that may be just the thing you need to bring you to repentance you may have to face that fearful, should be fearful to pay, face church discipline, but that fearful execution of the sword. And so um, please, please know that. That is no reason for you to avoid making the confession. So the goal is the purity of the church. The goal is your good. The goal is repentance. And I, I told the elders before I preached on this that I was going to ask them if there was anything they wanted to add at this point. I mean, there's so much that can be said on church discipline. I want all of you here to remember these words and to soften your heart toward this work of the ministry of your church. Soften your hearts and, and, and realize that this is for your good and it is what we consider to be the hardest, most difficult, agonizing part of the work that we do as elders. Right? Formal discipline is no fun. Right? And formal discipline is no fun for sinners to have to do because it's very convicting. Do you realize that? It's very convicting to have to exercise discipline. It's very convicting to have to exercise the discipline of preaching God's word because you're sitting here exhorting people and you're feeling all the ways that you failed your own exhortations the previous day, the previous two hours. But Rent and Chuck, anything you want to add? You can come up here. Seriously, yeah, come up here. That way it's, it's on tape. And they can, they can find it later and use it against you. <laughs> uh, the only thing I'd want to add to this is the, uh, so one of the things that stops uh, men uh, as heads of the home uh, one of the things that stops us from leading is the fear of isolation, the fear of our wife being distant from us, from not having the support. We fear that, uh, that sense of being alone. And uh, when discipline comes upon us, 
through the church, uh, the first thing that's going to happen is the person that is on your side, that loves you, is going to defend you, who is your wife. Your temptation, men, when discipline comes, is to look at your wife and say, yeah, you're right. They are being too hard on me. This is, this is ridiculous. We should think about going somewhere else. And that because your first response is, the church is, feels isolated from me because they're disciplining me. And now my wife has given me something to hold on to because she loves you and she wants to defend you. Real uh, leadership is helping your wife um, who wants to defend you because she loves you helping her see that your sin really is that severe. And that you are going to demonstrate your, your repentance first with your wife to help her understand that even though the discipline might seem embarrassing and the discipline might seem harsh, that it's worthwhile. And help her see it, lest she becomes bitter towards the church, bitter towards other men, are trying to help you and all that's going to happen is you're going to go to your next church and the whole thing's going to happen again uh, maybe you might find a church is so big no one knows who you are and that's usually what happens but the point is you had a chance to become something that the Lord is molding you into the image of his son and you said no to it so my admonishment would be, and this is to my, even to myself, when I get that discipline, when I hear something from the pulpit that, it, that is an informal discipline, when I get something that's real formal discipline, I need to help my family see that this, what I've done is serious enough for what I am going through, and we need to go through it together and guide your wife to... Uh, to see that you really are repentant and that sin really is important. Of course, that works both ways, too. It's not, not just, I mean, the, it can work the opposite way. That's true. As Andrew was talking this evening, I, uh, I was going through a thought experiment in my own head. Imagine you walk into a small room with a circle of chairs and you sit down, and then you suddenly realize that you're in the company of the Lord Jesus. He's right there. He's sitting across from you. How would that change your conduct? And I have never been so mindful of the Lord's presence as when I'm, as when I'm in a session meeting. There is a, there's a solemnity with my brothers here that when we pray and open those meetings in the evening, there's a realization that we are not alone in what we're doing. Now, there's, there's a great power and there's encouragement, of course, but there's also a tremendous weight. Because like Andrew, like Andrew just said, like your pastor just said, uh, Lord Jesus in his wisdom, he could have sent down, you know, flawless angels to be your shepherds in this church. There are days I wish he did that. Um, but we don't have, but that's not what he ordained. Instead, he gave, he gave fallible men to lead fallible men and women. And he gave us, and he gave us that so that we would, and he gave us that so that we would learn that we, your shepherds and you, the flock, would learn, would, we would all learn together our, to rely upon our great shepherd, upon Lord Jesus Christ.
So that's the most important office in the church, that we should never forget that our head is Christ. He is our head, he is our husband, he is the great shepherd. And so those of us called to discipline just try to do it faithfully uh, before him. And he's the one, and we, you know, we ask you, we beg you to be taking our names and our work to his throne every day um, and to bless this church and, and the church as a whole. And I, you, the other reason I wanted them to speak is because I don't do this work by myself. I'm not allowed to. It's all three of us together. And that's the beauty of Presbyterianism and a plurality of elders is we, we all work, we all are required to work together on these things. And we love you. We love you. We, we pray for you. Now, my wife will tell you that when she hurts, I get cranky. She stubs her toe, and I'm like, Ugh. or she's hurting because her back's hurting or some flare-up, and I, I lock up. And that may be the case, that if you fall under formal discipline, you may feel me locking up, and it's because I care about you. It is, it is and I, it just I feel it deeply, and it just causes me to, to lock up to a certain extent. Now, I pray that the Lord loosens me up so that I can do my work well, but know that if I'm scowling or something, it's because I'm trying to come to terms with the seriousness of the situation, and part of me doesn't want to deal with it, and part of me just wants to get along and be happy, and then part of me feels obligated, and I'm having this fight within myself, right? And then usually after she's been agonizing for five minutes, I snap out of my, no, and usually I don't. I don't know, you'd have to describe how the progress goes, but, but I just want, want to say that, that um, it, is, it is hard to bear burdens, it is hard for, um, it's hard for weak men to bear heavy burdens, and this is a heavy burden, okay? And so all of this is sort of, um, all of this is just preparatory in case you are ever in this circumstance. I just want to be, I, I want my conscience to be clear that at least we've spoken to you about these matters and we have done our best to, um, to define this and to prepare you for it and to help you believe that this is scriptural, that this is what the, the word would have us do. And it's for your good. So with that, I will stop and pray. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you that she is our mother. And Father, I pray that we would honor our mother, that we would love our mother, and that you would be uh, with the, the session, with the elder board, with uh, us as we do this work of discipline. And Father, I pray that we would not be like the foolish man who, who, who disregards the rebuke, and, uh, but that we would be uh, like the, the faithful man who, who receives a rebuke and is thankful. So Father, I pray that our pride would be killed. I pray that we would all be humble, that we would all be thankful to you for your many mercies and even the mercy of placing us in a place where we will be held to account. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would bless us, that you would bless the elders with wisdom, love, tenderness, um, discernment. And, Father, that all of us would be tender of heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.